you have your Bibles open, it's uh, Mark 9, verse 30 to 37. As I go through, I've got key bits coming up on the on the slides, but it's always good to have the word with you so you can follow along. If it wants to go. <laughs> it's okay, it's working right. Um, sometimes there are moments that change everything. A course of action that might have been unthinkable or avoidable can suddenly become imperative. We saw that happen in February 2022, when this country, among others, suddenly started to airlift weapons to Ukraine. It wasn't a normal thing to do at all, but it it suddenly seemed really urgent. And it happens in more mundane things as well. The life of a young parent is filled with nappy changes. But when your child's leaked, and when it's a number two, it doesn't matter how lovely the cup of tea is you've just made, or what you're currently doing, you need to drop it sort out the nappy disaster before it gets worse. I've managed to complete some big DIY projects in my time, but a leaky shower, that really demands my attention in a way that other things just don't. A few weeks ago, Chris explained we'd reached a turning point in Mark's Gospel. Peter had confessed that Jesus was the Christ. In the first half of the Gospel, Jesus had been trying to show the disciples that he is the Christ. Now, he's trying to explain what that means. And there's a much greater sense of urgency to this. Like the other other Gospels, Mark spent a lot of time dealing with the events at the end of Jesus' ministry. His death, his resurrection. And we're not very far away from that part of the Gospel, He needs to get his disciples ready, and he needs to get them ready now. The previous two weeks, we've looked at events that happened around Caesarea Philippi, just up north, out in Gentile territory. We come to see Jesus in Capernaum in Galilee today, and then he's going on to Judah, and then to Jerusalem. End game. Earlier on in the Gospel, we've seen Jesus operate in and around Galilee, to allow Jesus to control when this end game starts. He can move through different territories, they're ruled by different people. So always able to manage the attention he's getting from the authorities. But now Jesus is about to go straight to Jerusalem. And he's preparing his disciples for this because he knows this train of events will lead to his death, resurrection, <coughs> ascension, and the disciples being left to carry on his earthly ministry as leaders of the fledgling church. And we saw last week how the disciples weren't ready. They weren't able to cast out a demon as they'd done so earlier on in the gospel. It was an embarrassing failure as well. It was a public one, performed in full view of those scribes that often come up to challenge Jesus. We pick up today in verse 30 with Jesus and his disciples heading back into Galilee. Now, of course, much of Jesus' ministry occurred around here, and Jesus had been very overt in earlier parts of the Gospel. He sent his disciples out into the surrounding villages to call the people to repent, to heal people, to cast out demons. Jesus is no stranger to the Galileans. But here, Jesus is deliberately avoiding them. Now, Jesus does sometimes do things secretly, 
asking people who he's healed not to go around spreading the news or to go off by himself to pray or to give his disciples rest. Jesus isn't doing that here. He does intend to teach, but this lesson is for his disciples. And he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples. And what does Jesus say to them? Well, he goes on to give the second prediction of his death in Mark's Gospel. And this is the least detailed of the three predictions. The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed after three days, he will rise. It's a little different to what we see back in chapter 8, 31, which is where the first prediction is. There, Jesus singles out the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes. There, Jesus predicts his suffering and his rejection. But here, we get a, a summary of what Jesus has already taught. Much more simple. And this is something that's also taking place on journey. I'm sure you know, all of us at some point in our lives have been on one of those really long walks with probably a group of people. On the way, you open a conversation with the people who are accompanying you. And there can be quite a lot of time for a conversation on a walk. And Jesus is conducting a walking meeting, essentially. He's using the time to teach his disciples. This truncated prediction of his death, it's likely a summary of what Jesus is teaching them as they're going on that journey. However long it was. He's really pressing home this subject. And the disciples really don't like it. We are told they do not understand the saying and they were afraid to ask Jesus about it. Now, they might, they might have good reason for this. You know, last time this happened, Peter rebuked Jesus, and Jesus' response was, Get behind me, Satan. They certainly weren't up for asking Jesus to clarify this time. It might seem hard for us to understand their incomprehension. The summary of Jesus' teaching in verse 31 is fairly inescapable. There's no talk of suffering or rejection or the particular parties involved. It's simple. Jesus is saying he's going to be killed and after three days, rise again. Jesus isn't invoking an Old Testament passage where there's some strange scholarly discussion over the meaning of being killed. It's unambiguously not allegorical. The disciples' lack of understanding probably isn't because they don't understand what Jesus is saying. I think it's because they don't like what Jesus is saying. That would also explain why they won't ask Jesus to explain as they did last week, I mean verse 28. They'll gladly approach Jesus and ask him to explain, just not with this topic. To put it in more contemporary language, they're trying to find ways to cope. So this explains the need for this secret journey through Galilee, focusing on teaching the disciples. Because there's a heart attitude problem in the disciples that Jesus needs to address. We saw it last week when the disciples you know, not being able to exercise the unclean spirit. Perhaps they were trying to do so in their own strength. Jesus has to explain that this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. 
with the disciples just not relying on God to do these things. Here they have a problem accepting a seemingly simple message delivered in unambiguous language. And of course, they're on a journey. So Jesus has lots of time to explain it. They have plenty of time to ask Jesus what he means, but they're shying away from that. And we'll see soon enough what the problem was. But do you ever see yourself in the disciples here? Sometimes understanding what God's word said is genuinely difficult, but most of the time, I'm not sure it is. Obeying is harder than understanding. Putting Jesus first, taking up your cross and following him is always a bit more difficult than understanding the command. While I was preparing this, I was interrupted by some Jehovah's Witnesses. Um, they're inviting me to an event at this arena, which I think happened last week now. Um, and you know, they handed a leaflet, and I just said no thanks as this leaflet came towards me. And, um, and they left, pretty much immediately. And I was quite taken aback by how quickly they retreated. Um, but it was an opportunity to witness, and I, I missed it. If I'd told them I was preparing to preach on Mark's gospel, they would have probably been caught off guard. <laughs> he would probably have swung the initiative and the conversation firmly in my favour. But I, I missed that one. And, and the disciples, they're taking the easy way too here. They know what Jesus is saying, but it's much more comfortable to not face up to it. Verses 33-34 tell us what the disciples' problem is. Jesus' teaching wasn't the only conversation going on on the road to Capernaum. Perhaps, as there often is, that's you know, devolved into several groups on this walk, and you can't talk to lots and lots of people at the same time. Maybe Jesus wasn't simultaneously teaching all the disciples, but whatever was going on, they were certainly able to hold their own conversation without Jesus on this, on this journey. And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. Now Jesus asked the question in the same way that many teachers and many parents have asked similar questions. He already knows the answer, but he wants to see whether or not the disciples will um, own up to what they're talking about. The disciples respond to that question in the same way that many pupils and many children have done when their teachers and parents ask questions like this. Silence. The silence of a guilty conscience. The disciples know that they're sinning. They know that Jesus knows exactly what they were talking about. Who is the greatest? Which one of them is more honoured than the others? Who's going to sit at the right hand of Christ? What office will they hold in the king, you know, when the kingdom comes? It seems for disciples that being disciples of the Messiah has gone to their heads. Why can't they understand Jesus when he predicts his own death so plainly? Because what would that do for their position of honour that they expect to receive? Kings who were killed can't give rewards anymore. Or maybe some of them accepted that Jesus is going to die but their thinking is moving to a time after that moment, you know, what position will they have? Which of them will replace Jesus as the leader? The disciples really do have their eyes fixed on earthly things, not the things that are above. 
Last week, um, Steve talked about living at the bottom of the mountain, the bottom of the mountain experience. Um, and here, I think we see the, design, the disciples exhibit a bottom of the mountain thinking. They're in a valley, if you like, trying to get a better view by climbing on each other's shoulders, while Jesus is trying to encourage them up the valley sides. Maybe they expected some sort of earthly honour if Jesus was the Messiah and he was bringing the kingdom in a sort of a physical sense of dominion over earth. Maybe Jesus would find the earth as a big place. Maybe his disciples would end up like the generals of Alexander the Great who all got their own kingdoms and empires following his death. Maybe it was a position before God that was special and beyond that of the Jews. Um, as close associates to the Messiah, maybe they felt that they were just chosen a little bit more than the rest of God's people. We saw last week that they seemed to have felt that maybe their position was something that was down to them. Not prayerfully asking God, in Jesus' name, to cast out the demon, but failing to cast it out themselves. Were maybe they didn't think they were disciples by God's grace, maybe they felt they deserved it. Those who feel they deserve special favour don't tend to do very well in the Bible. As a way of example, being firstborn was a position of honour. But that wasn't necessarily favoured by God. Isaac wasn't the firstborn of Abraham. Jacob was not the firstborn of Isaac. Joseph was not the firstborn of Jacob. King David was the youngest of his brothers. Now the Pharisees thought they would due special favour because of all the little extra commandments they kept, causing them to believe themselves more righteous, more worthy than the rest of God's people, and certainly more worthy than any of the Gentiles. Now this attitude is dangerous. It leads to a feeling of superiority. Superiority over other people. You know, the Pharisees were angry when Jesus healed on the Sabbath. You know, as if healing people wasn't honouring to God. You know, but it, it gets between us and God as well. You know, we mustn't think we know better than God, but this can start to creep in. And this is the heart of the problem with the disciples' understanding. It's their heart problem. How can you be saved by grace if you don't realise you need to receive it? How easy is it to walk into sin if you define what sin is? And it's not just the disciples' problem, is it? It's our problem too. It's the human problem. Jesus calls people to repent, to turn away from their sin to God. And that's why the gospel is a hard message to preach then and today. After all, most people are good people, aren't they? What on earth have most people have done that they need to repent of? Now, Jesus knows that they're arguing about who is the greatest. But he doesn't directly address that. He certainly doesn't answer it and point all them out or anything like that. You know, he doesn't start explaining to them that all people sin and fall short of God's glory. So arguing about who is the greatest is kind of a moot point. They must all fall on the grace of God. Rather, Jesus goes after that heart attitude the one that wants to elevate themselves above each other, but also in their own minds can end up elevating them over God. And he sat down and called the twelve and said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. 
in response to the disciples arguing about who is first, Jesus says they must be last. It's a reversal of roles of importance. Jesus has been trying to teach them about how he's heading towards martyrdom. Victory is going to come at the cross. The worldly way of looking at things is back to front with God. He who is last of all and servant of all will be first. But what does this mean in practice? Does it mean you should always give up your place in the queue for the till at the supermarket? Like they pressure you to do in Aldi, you've got a big shop. (laughs) Or always opening the door for people, even if they're really far away. Or maybe not taking a position of authority or responsibility where you might have to give instructions to other people. Well, thankfully, Jesus is going to show us what this looks like And he does this by taking a little child. Why does he take a child? Now in the culture we live in, what Jesus is doing probably wouldn't work, or it wouldn't work as well. Our society on balance values children. We spend a huge amount of time and energy educating them because they're seen as our society's future. Something we should be investing our time in. But that doesn't mean that children were always valued in the same way. In Jesus' time, children were liabilities, dependent for absolutely everything on the adult members of the household. They would eventually gain some value when they're old enough to work, but for the time being, they consume without contributing. In the social pecking order, they were at the very bottom. Jesus is selecting a child because they're the opposite of the greatest. Indisputably, and obviously to those who are around him, one of the least. Now, I don't think that this societal view was born out from scripture. Um, For example, in uh, Psalm 127, we read, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb are reward, like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. You know, I don't think Jesus holds such a low view of children, but he really lays on this example. Notice how Jesus doesn't just say, whoever receives one child in my name receives it, he also takes the child up into his arms. And that's literally what the Greek means, to take into his arms. He's not like stood with the child in front of him with his hands on the child's shoulders or something. You know, he's lifted the child up and embraced them. Jesus is giving the disciples a visual message of what he's explaining as well as a verbal one. You know, he really wants the disciples to understand this. Different translations use different words for receives. If you've got an NIV, I think it'll say welcomes. Um, the message. Um, which I sometimes look up, it can sometimes be quite good. It uses embraces in this passage, which I quite like. Um, It's certainly more than just a hello at the door. It's a bit more than just hospitality. It's assigning importance to someone who the world says isn't important. And it isn't just strictly about children, but those who are like children. Not childlike in their attitude, but like children in that culture 
people defined by their littleness and their unimportance. Welcome such people in Jesus' name, and you are welcoming, receiving, or embracing Jesus. This is surely a clear sign of someone with saving faith, that they start to treat other people as Jesus did. And it's costly. Jesus made important all sorts of people. Children, widows, the sick, the demon-possessed, those marginalised by society for other reasons, like tax collectors, or tax collectors and sinners, friends, that's often thrown at him. Jesus, of course, uniquely has a claim to being the greatest. What's the greatest expression of his greatness? To lay down his life for sinners that they might believe in him and have everlasting life. This teaching is relayed in the other two synoptic gospels. Um, it's a little different in Matthew. You'll find it in Matthew 18. It's right at the start of that chapter. Um, it's a little different in Matthew, but the point is really the same. Jesus is calling his disciples to humble themselves by making those who are not important to the world important in his name, for his sake. And the receiving isn't just limited to Jesus, is it? At the end of verse 37, which is that those who receive Jesus also receiving the Father. The whole thing is similar to the, the parable of the sheep and the goats, which I'll quickly read through, or read through the, the end of it. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you a drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. See how in both cases, the receiving of the unimportant, the vulnerable, is equated with receiving Christ. Now there's a couple of bits of important context go through as we try to understand Jesus' message in verse 37. Because there's a bit more to it, isn't it, than just a call by Jesus to his disciples to do as I do. It's something that has eternal consequences, receiving not just Christ, but also the Father. And through doing what? Good work? Can that be right? So, first bit of context. This isn't like Jesus' message preached at the start of Mark. Uh, so now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God, and saying, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. Unlike Jesus' earlier call to believe the gospel, this saying was given to the disciples in private. And the disciples are not unbelievers. Judas is there, but as a group, they're not unbelievers. They believe Jesus is the Christ. They've cast out demons and healed in his name. So I don't think Jesus is talking about salvation here. The second clue is what being, what's being received isn't salvation, is the inclusion of in my name. 
Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. If you do something in someone's name, you're acting on their behalf. Your actions are inspired by what you think they would do. This is important because this is a lovely saying of Jesus, but it's not just a lovely saying about treating the downtrodden nicely. It's not aimed at a general audience, an unbelieving audience. It's aimed at a believing audience, aimed at the disciples. One of those long Christian jargon words is sanctification. And I think this is what Jesus is describing here. The process by which God works in us to make us more like Jesus. Receiving Christ and us also receiving the Father are things that a Christian can look forward to here on earth. The kingdom begins now. To quote the band Switchfoot, I'm ready now, I'm not waiting for the afterlife. And to us here this morning, we have this challenge really laid out by Jesus as he's heading to Jerusalem. Jesus is in a hurry to sort out this issue with the disciples. To encourage them to do good works in his name, to receive his and also the Father's blessing. Sanctification is often described um, as someone walking up the stairs with a yo-yo. You've probably heard that one, most people have. You're meant to imagine the yo-yo is drawing a line on the graph. Um, hopefully, the general trend line is up, even if when you zoom in there's, there's been some bouncing about up and down. And hopefully sanctification in our lives is a general trend that goes up. But this doesn't mean it can't be fast. And we shouldn't seek to make it happen faster. Jesus is in a hurry here. He's going for the end game and the disciples need sanctified, made more righteous, made more like him. One of the advantages of the evangelical tradition is its emphasis placed on salvation by faith alone, which is a good thing, by the way preserving one of the most important theological points of the Reformation. But just because salvation is a work of God, it doesn't mean that in our minds we should leave sanctification up to God and sort of sit passively. Now, I don't mean that it's not God's doing. Jesus is calling on people here who have received the kingdom already to in turn receive those unimportant in society. And if they do, they'll receive more. So being sanctified isn't a passive process. It's part of our response to be in the kingdom. What helped me understand the kingdom was it being explained to me that um, Hebrew is a verb-dominated language. So being a part of the kingdom to Jesus and his disciples, the people who hear his message, wouldn't necessarily be understood in the way that we think of being a citizen of a country. Following the Brexit votes, I had some colleagues who um, were able to apply for Irish passports, which they did straight away. Um, they had no intention whatsoever of living in Ireland or having anything to do with Ireland. They just wanted to keep their EU citizenship, which is fair enough. Um, but being part of the Kingdom of God is not like living in the UK, but holding an Irish passport. It's something you do. And likewise, receiving the kingdom is something you do as well. The response of those saved, like by the grace of God, is to live for God. Because of your salvation, you've received a new heart. Because of that, 
in Christ's name, you can make important those that the world sees as unimportant. And when you do that, you will find God's riches are even richer. You will know him more deeply. You will be moved to do God's work in this world all the more. So, you who have received the kingdom, who have received God's grace, seek to use the grace given to you as you serve in the church, as you seek to love each other, and love those you know, outside the church, or those who seem unimportant to society. Jesus wants us to see sort of sanctification not just as something we sit and wait to happen. You know, it's something we should actively be pursuing. We should seek to receive the kingdom more and more. I'm going to allow the Apostle Paul to sort of summarise up at the end, because I think he does a better job of it than I do. Um, writing to the Colossians, this might be small, but I will read it out. <laughs> and you can see here how he you know, explains how they're receiving blessings from God and then using them to do good works. It's, sort of, it's a bit like a, um, a cycle of continuous improvement, but I wouldn't put a diagram like that up because I do that at work, so I'm going to go there. And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Lord, I thank you for these words of Jesus. I thank you for the extraordinary wisdom and patience you showed to the disciples as you urgently sought to talk them, taught them to receive you more, to seek to serve the kingdom more fully, to place themselves last, humble themselves, Lord. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us to do the same, that you would help us to seek to humble ourselves um, throughout the situations we encounter in our lives, whether we're serving in the church um, or called to serve in a particular way that may not seem glamorous, Lord, or where um, or we meet people who are needy, that you would help us to do those things because you have shown that sort of love to us, that you rescued us while we were sinners, when you could say we were unimportant, Lord, that you showed us that we were incredibly important. And I pray, Lord, that like those disciples who we can look at and see faltering in the Gospels in those early days, um, we know, Lord, that they became leaders of your church, and I pray, Lord, that we would see such transformation in ourselves um, and those around us, that we would see us growing in our love for you and our knowledge of you, and see your blessing poured out on us, Lord, as we do that. Amen. Amen. Amen.